Good morning. Well, yesterday was summer, so I guess we're into fall now. I, or, I don't know, something like that. Boy, that was nice yesterday. I see a few uh, sunburned foreheads, and hopefully we all got some sunshine yesterday. That was really nice. So, no, it's good to be up here. It's been a long time since I've been able to do this. But it's really awesome that Pastor Mike gets to take this month off because, uh, as Heather said, he works hard. He, he tries to take Mondays off, and if he's successful at that, well, then he only works six days a week. So, I mean, that's pretty good. So, yeah, he's always going. And I don't know if anybody who hasn't ever been in a pastoral capacity even begins to understand the stresses and strains that comes with that position. It's, it's pretty amazing. The... Uh, you know, the spiritual attacks, emotional attacks, you're just always on duty and there's always something going on in someone's life and it's, it's taxing. So it's good to get him away and get him refreshed. So praise God. And then I get to be here. Um, <clears throat> we're living in some interesting times, aren't we? Very interesting. It's, it's something else. Uh, up seems down and down seems up, Right. <laughs> What's right is wrong. What's wrong is right. It's amazing what we're seeing. Uh, things that used to be considered honorable are now considered despicable. Isn't that something? Even things like, uh, you know, integrity or Christian values uh, are now viewed by many as dangerous or bigotry or racism. Or, you know, isn't it just amazing just the the shifts that we've seen in the last couple of years in our, in our society. And we're in the middle of a pandemic, which has changed everything, right? How many of you feel like normal? What's that? Uh, the normal we once knew, I don't think we're ever going to get back to, are we? It just seems really weird, and it can be really upsetting. Uh, in the middle of all that, then we had, you know, the George Floyd incident and all that came with that and other incidents and all the riots and just the, the, the polarization. I've never seen in my lifetime such a polarized society where it's this or it's that. There's not in between. It's not like, oh, you think that and I think this? Well, that's okay. We can still be friends. It just seems like, for the most part, that's gone, isn't it? It's, it's, you're either here and you're, or you're there, and that person's the enemy or that person's the enemy. It's just really amazing the shift in our culture in the last couple of years. Are you a little bit afraid about the future? Is everything shook up? I mean, it's just really weird. It's easy. And I've seen people and had people talk to me that are in a dark place. It's, they're just depressed. They've withdrawn because, oh man, I don't even want to say I'm a Christian because this is quite a volatile society now. When you see all of these things. So, so what do we do with this? How do we deal with these interesting times that we're living in? I'd like to dig into God's word a little bit and go all the way back and look at some examples of people in tumultuous times and just uh, hopefully we can learn from it, all right? So let's pray, and then we're going to dig into God's word. <clears throat> Lord God, I just thank you so much that you are our rock. The same yesterday, today, and forever that you're our God, and thank you so much for your word that you give us that we can look at and dig into and see examples and learn what you have for us and learn how to navigate our way through this world. And so today I just pray that you would help us to do that. I just pray that you would open our spiritual eyes and ears and clarify our minds to just hear what you have to say for us today. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. All right, there is a term that I am 
honestly pretty sick of hearing that I've heard so much of in the last couple of years, and I've used it a lot myself. Unprecedented times. How many times have you heard that? We're living in unprecedented times. We've never seen anything like this before. And I've used it a lot. Like I say, you know, even in my job, you get people, because when COVID especially first started, we're shifting, oh, the CDC says this. Oh, now next week it's this. Oh, we got to do this. You know, I thought we could have these work scheduled, but now we have to change. And it was just shifting and changing constantly, wasn't it? And so I get people all the time. Well, I thought we were doing this. Now how come we're doing this? And what's going on? I've used it over and over. Man, these are unprecedented times. We don't know. We're just shifting with it and adjusting as we go, right? Uh, So I've used it all a lot, but I'm kind of tired of hearing that now. And I started thinking about that. Unprecedented times. This has never happened before. Or has it? I mean, King Solomon said, there's nothing new under the sun, didn't he? What has been will be again. What's happening has happened before. There's nothing new under the sun. Vanity, vanity, it's all vanity. Well, he was the wisest man to ever live, so I probably should put some weight in that, right? So is it unprecedented times or what's going on? So let's go back. We're going to look way to the beginning of the Bible. We're going to read some in Exodus. Um, I'll set this up first so we know where we're at. In Genesis, it, it talks about, remember Joseph and his coat of many colors? We'll quickly recap the story of Joseph. Joseph was the youngest of 12 brothers, the sons of Jacob, also known as Israel, thus the 12 sons of Israel, the children of Israel, which became tribes and nations and all this eventually and everything. Joseph being the youngest, uh, his brothers thought he was the spoiled brat and really didn't like him. Yeah, I don't think the youngest kid is a spoiled brat at all. I mean, and I say that because I'm the youngest child, (laughs) but so that's not true. Can't be. But yeah, I had a little bit of that too. There were five of us. I was the youngest, four years behind the closest one to me. So I was a little tag, around, tag along that nobody wanted around anyway. So I can relate to Joseph a little bit. Luckily, my brothers didn't take it as far as Joseph's brothers did. They, yeah, they wanted to kill him, but decided let's throw him in this pit in the ground. But then some Egyptians came along and they said, hey, we can get some money for this guy. So they sold him to some Egyptians who took him to be a slave and a servant in Egypt. Unbelievable, huh? Uh, God, of course, used that situation like he always does to uh, save them and to bring about good. He eventually, after years and years of Joseph being in prison and everything else, Joseph became number two in the nation uh, in charge of preparing for this famine that God had told him was coming. Seven years of prosperity, seven years of famine. So during those first seven years, he stored things up and got them all prepared so they were ready when this famine hit. Joseph's family were going through famine as well when that hit. They were starving and said, hey, let's go to Egypt. I've heard they're storing up food. They have a store of food there, and they can maybe help us out. So they go to Egypt. Guess who's there? Joseph. And dad finds out that he isn't actually dead. And he sets him up, gets him set up in Egypt. The children of Israel prosper and grow like crazy. God blesses them because they honor God with their lives. And they're growing so fast and becoming so numerous that the Egyptians become afraid of them. And so that's where we're going to pick it up now in Exodus uh, chapter 1. We're going to read verses 6 through 14. Now Joseph and all his brothers and all of that generation died. So they've been in Egypt for quite a while. But the Israelites were exceedingly fruitful. 
They multiplied greatly, increased in numbers, and became so numerous that the land was filled with them. Then a new king, to whom Joseph meant nothing, came to power in Egypt. Look, he said to his people, the Israelites have become far too numerous for us. Come, we must deal shrewdly with them or they will become even more numerous. And if war breaks out, they'll join our enemies and fight against us and leave the country. So they put slave masters over them to oppress them with forced labor. They built Pithom and Ramses as store cities for Pharaoh. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied and spread. So the Egyptians came to dread the Israelites, and they worked them ruthlessly. They made their lives bitter with harsh labor in brick and mortar and with all kinds of work in the fields. In all their harsh labor, the Egyptians worked them ruthlessly. Talk about life flipping upside down, right? So they've been in Egypt a long time. They're growing. They're prospering. They have families. Their life is good. They're cruising along, and suddenly a new king comes in, and boom, life has changed. Normal? What's normal? Is that ever going to happen again? Probably not. Now you're in forced labor. You're slaves. You're built doing these things. Hmm, someone else has been in the situation where normal has disappeared before, haven't they? So later on, even, it got worse. They, that didn't work to put them in forced labor. They kept being fruitful and multiplying. And so the king told the midwives that, hey, when you're delivering an Israelite baby, if it's a boy, kill it. It's a girl, let him live. But we just can't let him keep growing like this. What a horrible thing. Talk about being oppressed. And later, it didn't work either. So he passed a law throughout all, all Egypt that any Israel baby boy had to be thrown into the Nile River. Get rid of him. Normal? Life upset? Wow. They really, and this is way at the beginning of time. Man, they, they went through it. And as we go throughout the Old Testament, this cycle goes over and over and over. We see kingdoms and nations where there's a good king in place. Things are great. Suddenly he dies, a new king takes over. He's an evil king and starts doing evil things and oppresses the people and life changes and shifts and normal is gone all over again. All throughout history, we see it. Remember Job? We're going to read a little bit about Job just to grasp a little bit how his life was. Job 1 through 4 of chapter 1 says, In the land of Uz there lived a man whose name was Job. This man was blameless and upright. He feared God and shunned evil. He had seven sons and three daughters. And he owned 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, and 500 donkeys, and had a large number of servants. He was the greatest man among all the people of the East. His sons used to hold feasts in their homes on their birthdays, and they would invite their three sisters to eat and drink with them. So Job was the greatest man in all of the East, and he had all this stuff, thousands of, of, of uh, flocks of animals, and life was good. Excuse me. Throat's given out on me. So Job is living a good life. And a regular family, they're having birthday parties, you know, and having people over for that. So yeah, life is just normal. Let's skip down to verse 13 through 22 and see what happens to Job. One day, 
When Job's sons and daughters were feasting and drinking wine at the oldest brother's house, a messenger came to Job and said, The oxen were plowing and the donkeys were grazing nearby, and the Sabians attacked and made off with them. They put the servants to the sword, and I'm the only one who has escaped to tell you. While he's still speaking, another messenger comes, and he said, The fire of God fell from the heavens and burned up the sheep and the servants, and I'm the only one who has escaped to tell you. While he was still speaking, yet another messenger came and said, The Chaldeans formed three raiding parties and swept down on your camels and made off with them. They put the servants to the sword, and I'm the only one who has escaped to tell you. While he's speaking, yet another messenger comes and said, Your sons and daughters were feasting and drinking wine at the oldest brother's house. When suddenly a mighty wind swept in from the desert and struck the four corners of the house, it collapsed on them and they are dead, and I'm the only one who has escaped to tell you. At this, Job got up and tore his robe and shaved his head. Then he fell to the ground in worship and said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I will depart. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. May the name of the Lord be praised. In all of this, Job did not sin by charging God with wrongdoing. That's amazing to me. Lost everything. Still, he didn't charge God with wrongdoing, didn't blame God, still trusted God. That's a good example for us. We think our normal is gone. We're upset with the way our lives are. We're not Job. Man, he lost everything, including his family. I can't even begin to imagine. We look at Daniel as we move up through history. Remember Daniel? He was living a pretty good life. He was working in the royal palace, a servant of the king, eating the best of food. Suddenly, three tricksters didn't like him and tricked the, the king into signing a decree that made, them, made him have to throw Daniel into a lion's den. Oof, life is flipped upside down. It turned out okay. God saved him, but still, man, flipped upside down. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, kind of the same deal thrown into the fiery furnace. Suddenly, for, for serving God, they're accused of treason to the king and, and on all this stuff. Life's flipped upside down for them. We can keep going. We move into the New Testament. Well, now Jesus has come. The Messiah has come. Changed everything. Performed miracles. Healed people. Did all these great things. Well, then he was crucified, but he rose from the dead. So then on the day of Pentecost, the Holy Spirit comes to the church and gives them power. And they are changing the world. They're like, look, the Messiah has come. We need to tell everyone about this. And they're performing all kinds of miracles. This is great. But then what happens? Oppression came. The church was persecuted and scattered. Tons of them were arrested, beaten, severely put in prison. In Ephesus, there were riots and angry mobs protesting against Christianity. And this is way back then, you know, sounds kind of like today. <laughs> Paul was arrested several times and beaten. We've read the story before of Paul and Silas when they're beaten severely and put in prison. 
well, I thought Jesus came and changed all this, and we're changing the world, and then all of a sudden all this. What happened? Talk about normal being gone. So we can even move beyond the Bible. 541 AD, so just 541 years after Christ, the Justinian, uh, the plague of Justinian killed an estimated 30 to 50 million people. You think COVID's bad? Of course, they had no way to deal with them back then. Uh, the Black Death hit in 1347, and an estimated 200 million people died. From the years, from the 1300s through the 1600s, the plague of London resurfaced many times, and each time it took out roughly 20% of the population of London. Wow. Unprecedented times we're in? I don't think so. World War I, think about being alive then when suddenly we're, the whole world's in war and chaos and your kids are getting sent off to war and dying and everything. Normal? No, that's gone. World War II, when Hitler took over and started killing tens of thousands of, of, of Jews and taking over this country and that country, and everyone's going to war again. Normal? Out the window. Gone. Unprecedented times, you say. Not really. Not really. My mind goes back to even the 60s, and I'm feeling really old because I realized you start to feel old when you find yourself saying the things that your parents used to say, and you'd go, whatever. You ever catch yourself doing that? And the latest thing for me is, you know, even in my job, I deal with a lot of people, hire people, fire people, training and doing all this stuff. And, and I don't know how many times in the last couple of years I've found myself going, this younger generation, oh, these kids now, you know, right? No offense to younger kids or anything like that. There's plenty of good, hardworking people in the younger generation. But boy, there's times I'm like, no work ethic and no common sense and, or morals or the things they think they're entitled to right off the bat. These kids, we're in trouble. These are the future leaders of our country, of our churches, of our business. We're in trouble. I don't, what are we going to do? But then I think back and go, what about my parents? That generation. Think about coming up through the 40s and the 50s. The 50s, I, I always have this picture in my mind. The 50s were so clean cut and all the guys with short hairs and the girls in their bobby socks and skirts and dating and getting married and having families and values like that. And then comes the 60s. Wow. Flower children, you know, free love, free sex. You should be able to be with anyone, whoever, wherever, whenever you want. I'll be one tripping out on LSD and all these psychedelic drugs and tons of kids dying. <sighs> Think what adults in that generation thought. What in the world? These kids, this is our future leaders of our government, of our churches. They probably thought the exact same things I was thinking. But hey, turned out all right, didn't it? So, okay, maybe I'm just old and think the same things that everyone does about the younger generation, right? So even that, you know, when I look at that, that's not really unprecedented at all. So here's the crux of this whole thing, and here's my experience. 
four or five, maybe six months ago, I don't even remember, I can't pinpoint the time. I'm working in my shop, okay? I'm at my workbench and I'm working away and I stand up and I'm working on some things and all of these things are just rolling through my brain. And I'm praying about it saying, God, this younger generation, what's going to happen in the future? And man, all that's going on with COVID and the unrest with, you know, politics and race and all of this stuff going on and what... And I started thinking then about the 60s. I went, oh, yeah, well, that, I mean, that turned out okay. And then I went back and started thinking about all these things that I just talked to you about, wars, plagues, pandemics. In the Bible, I went back to the children of Israel and going, wow, that's amazing. And all of a sudden, I don't know if this is the Holy Spirit revealing it to me or if I just came to this realization myself, I got a tall stool sitting there in my set, and I just sat down and I went, wait a minute, unprecedented times? Not at all. This is the same cycle that's been happening over and over and over and over again. And it's a distraction. It's a trick. It's distracting me from God's purpose for my life. It's distracting me from the future that he has for us. How can I get so distracted and lost by all these dumb, stupid subjects and political things? And what is wrong with me? I'm falling for it, hook, line, and sinker. And I just sat there for I don't know how long, just going, I can't believe this. What's wrong with us? And it's true, isn't it? We get distracted by these silly things that seem to be life-changing and normal's going to gets distracted and mad because we have to wear a piece of cloth on our face. When God has a plan, a purpose, a goal for us, and a destiny and a future. And it just blew me away. So my next question, of course, was, well, so now what? Now that I realize this, and that's why I call this sermon, so now what? What do we do with this? We're in these crazy, tumultuous, chaotic times that obviously aren't really unprecedented. What do we do now? How do we handle this? How do we represent Christ in a way that's honoring to God? How do we navigate this stuff? So I'd like to spend some time looking at that. Let's take a look at, well, I started thinking, what do we do? Let's go, what are the basics? Let's start there. Let's go back to the basics. What do you suppose the most recognized verse in the Bible is? John 3.16. Everyone knows that. For God's love of the world that he gives only. And I really think that it's probably the most underappreciated verse in the Bible, too, just because it is so well known and so it's old hat and you just recite it and know it. So let's go back to the basics and let's see what God is all about. And let's take a look at John 3.16. Let's read that together. For God so loved what? The world. He loves the world so much. How much that he gave his one and only son as a parent that blows my mind. He loved the world so much that he sent his son. But what part of the world did he love? That whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. So he loves the people of the world so much that he gave his son for us. Isn't that amazing? That none should perish and that all should have eternal life. 
The next verse, verse 17 says, For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. So he didn't send Jesus to say, you're wrong, you need to stop doing that, do this different, do that. He didn't come to condemn the world. He came to save the world. That's the heart of God. That's why he did it. So if that's the heart of God, shouldn't that be my heart too for people? And it's so easy in this environment to lose that, isn't it? It's so easy to get jaded and, you know, and especially when you work with a lot of people and see a lot of things and you look on social media, it's pretty easy to get jaded and even bitter. And how do you love the world like God loves the world in the middle of this culture? It's pretty tough. Another verse that really reveals the heart of God to me, another situation is in Matthew 22, where the Sadducees had been trying to trick Jesus, of course. The religious people of the day wanted to trip up this Jesus who was disrupting their way of doing things. And so they tried to trick him with questions. They didn't, of course, because he's God. (laughs) He kind of knows better, a little bit smarter than them. So the Pharisees then thought they would give it a shot. And let's pick it up there in, in Matthew 22. We'll read 34 through 38. Hearing that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, the Pharisees got together. One of them, an expert in the law, tested him with this question. Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? Jesus replied, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. So he said, this is it. This is the first and greatest commandment. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. But he didn't stop there. And this is the part that really caught my eye. They asked for what? What's the greatest commandment? He gave them two. Let's continue. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. So why did Jesus do that? Why didn't he not stop? Okay, this is the greatest one. Love the Lord your God with your heart, soul, and mind, because that encompasses all of them, and and that's it. I believe he did it because he really wanted them to understand, and he really wants us to understand that a huge part of loving God with your heart, soul, and mind is loving his people, his precious creation, his people. That's the heart of God. Part of loving God is loving people. Man, just love people. Not easy to do when they're different than me or have different opinions or ideas than me, right? It's tough to do. How do we love the person on social media posting things that we completely disagree with (laughs) and is on this other side of this fence? How do we love them? That takes the love of God, man. And... I got to tell you, I struggle with it too, like anyone else. And I've got to pray constantly, Lord, fill me with your love for people. And he does. He does. He, He helps us to start to have compassion and to see them a little bit differently. Jesus is our perfect example. And I love the example in Luke 19. I think we can learn a lot from it. So let's take a look at that. Luke 19, 5 through 10. This is about Zacchaeus. Uh, Jesus was coming through an area and Zacchaeus came and wanted to see Jesus too, but there was too many crowds. He couldn't see him. So Zacchaeus climbs a tree to see Jesus and we'll pick it up there. When Jesus reached the spot, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, come down immediately. 
I must stay at your house today. So he came down at once and welcomed him gladly. All the people saw this and they began to mutter, He's gone to be the guest of a sinner. But Zacchaeus stood up and said to the Lord, Look, Lord, here and now I give half of my possessions to the poor, and if I've cheated anybody out of anything, I will pay back four times the amount. Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house because this man too is the son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. So this story is so telling because Zacchaeus was a tax collector. So, and in that day, they were considered the dirtiest, scummiest sinners that there were because their job was to collect taxes, obviously. And how they got paid is they'd go to someone, if they owed 500 denarii, they'd say, you owe 1,000 denarii to the, to the government, pay up. They'd be like, no, I don't need to work. So they got paid. They'd collect the tax, the 500 denarii, and anything they could get over that, they'd keep. So that's how they made their living is by lying about how much people owned and skimming it off the top and keeping it. So they were really considered to be the ultimate sinner in in all the legalistic Pharisees and Sadducees living in the day. So he's a tax collector. Here's the deal. Jesus loved him anyway. And he saw him as a precious soul that needed God. Right? He didn't see this scummy tax collector. He's one of the creation. He's a precious soul that he's got. And Zacchaeus knew that he needed to change, didn't he? He said, oh, man, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to give half of what I own to the poor. And if I've cheated anyone, I'm paying back four times. Jesus didn't have to tell him, did he? He knew it. I love verse 10. Jesus came to seek out and save the lost. So do we, how do we feel about those who treat us badly or those that we view as evil or on the other side of this polarized culture we're in or something like that? How do we feel about them? How do we see them? How do we view them? And what's our goal in dealing with them, whether it be posting on social media or working with them in the workplace? or What, what is our goal? How do we work with that? Do we tell them how wrong they are? Is that helpful? We prove our point, make sure they know that we're right. Is that helpful? We tell them how a Christian should believe and act. Are they going to change because we tell them that? I doubt it. In fact, that's a lot of the reason that Christians have the bad reputation, that we're just bigots and racists and trying to tell everyone else how to live and everything. Is that what Jesus did? These things won't draw them to Christ. I believe that we need to follow Jesus' example, hang out with them, see them as wonderful people that God created and loves and wants to be in heaven with him, to hurt for them, knowing that they need a relationship with God. They need God in their life to change them. And here's the deal. Don't put the cart before the horse. Okay, and what I mean is that we we tend to do that a lot. It's easy to do. So, do, do people need to clean up their act, stop doing this, stop doing this, so they can come to God? No, that's not the point. The point is God accepts us the way we are. The point is they need a relationship with God so that He can come in and change them from the inside out, not the other way around. Right? 
They don't need to change and clean up so that God will accept. And they're not going to do that. They need a relationship with God. So don't put the cart before the horse. Don't think we need to prove our point and tell everyone they're right. So what do we need to do so they come to a relationship with God and he can change and take care of all that? We need to shine our light into the world. The Bible talks about that, that a lot. Shine your light. How do we do that and what does that mean? You know, Jesus said, you don't take a candle and put it on, hide it under a bushel basket. You put it up on a stand where it can do some good. And I've used this example before. It, it just sparks with me and makes sense. So here's the deal. What if you have a flashlight and you want to help people out? You want to make sure they don't stumble and stub their toe or something like that. So you want to be helpful. So you go outside when we're down here, you know, it's noon and the sun's shining bright. And you go, here, let me help you. Shine the light in front of you so that you can see. What are people going to do? I think you need some help. <laughs> Something's not right. It's not effective. There's no reason for it, right? A light is only effective in the dark, isn't it? So if you're praying, God, help me shine your light to this world, you better get ready to be put in the dark, right? And don't be surprised by it. So how does that work? If everything is going good in this world and everything's fine and everything's wonderful, everyone's happy and having a good life, and you are too and you have the love of God and you're full of his joy, are they even going to notice? Are you going to be able to do any good? Probably not because everyone's happy. Now, when things start going sideways, things are upside down, Right is wrong, wrong is right. People are worried and scared and afraid and don't know what's going to happen. And you have the love of God in you. You've been spending time in his presence. The spirit of God is exuding through you his love, his joy, his peace, the confidence in him and the future that you have in him. Boy, now people notice. People, this is not unprecedented, scary situation. This is opportunity. The times we're living in right now are opportunity to be the example, to live with the love of Christ in us, with the confidence of his Holy Spirit exuding from us. We're in times of opportunity. Don't miss it. So the other thing that I think we're really being distracted from and really missing, other than our mission and our goal on, on, on earth, is our future. I think we really forget and miss the future that God has planned for us. It's phenomenal. It's incredible. Um, I would read in Revelation about what heaven is like, just to give you a taste of that. But again, we're running out of time. So read that on your own. Take a look at that. Our, our future is incredible. First uh, Corinthians 2.9 says that no eye has seen, no ear has heard, no human brain has even imagined the things that God has in store for us. He has got a future plan for us that is unbelievable. Uh, it's interesting because I recently read a book called Imagine Heaven. And it's a collection of, this guy did this study for years and years and years and years of people who have had near-death experiences. They've been unconscious or even dead and been revived and everything like that and come back telling of the afterlife. And, you know, there's arguments for, okay, it's just chemical reactions of the brain or because they're unconscious, they're imagining or dreaming or um, it's someone's concept of what heaven or hell is really like. And yeah, of course, there's some of that probably too. But there are hundreds, 
possibly thousands of examples throughout history of this, where people from completely different situations, some of them with no religious background at all or anything like that, there are just too many commonalities and similarities in these stories to totally discount them. And so it's amazing. And I'm blown away by how incredible and awesome heaven is going to be. And the interesting thing is, I was just finishing reading this book uh, when I lost my dad on Christmas Day of last year. And it helped me a lot because I'm telling you, I can't imagine the things he's experiencing right now. Uh, he's, he's loving it. He's just having a great time. I just can't even begin to imagine the things that God has planned for us. But we've got an incredible future. We've got to keep that in mind and not lose sight of that. It's like Pastor Mike has told the story, and I have as well, about what if you suddenly found out that you inherited a billion dollars and a Caribbean island and everything you could ever think of and a, a business that runs itself to take care of it all, this huge, incredible future from some relative that you never even knew existed. But the only thing you had to do is get down to the Minneapolis airport because your private jet is waiting for you there. You jump on it, go to the island, sign the papers. It's all yours. But you've got this rusty old truck that burns oil and smokes like crazy and looks really rough. And would you be embarrassed by that and thinking, oh, what are people thinking of me driving as you're heading down to the airport? <laughs> oh, who cares? I can put up with this. I'm going to get my billion dollars on my island. Who cares? You can put up with some stuff when you know the destination is great, right? If we got to go through a few things in this life... So what? Look at our destination. Look what God has planned for us. And if we can keep that in mind, it kind of changes the way we see things and, and the way we operate, and we stay on course, stay on plan. Because you also wouldn't get distracted on your way down to Minneapolis and, oh, stop at this shop and look at that, and, oh, McDonald's, and, and then start doing other things, and a couple days later go, ah, where was I going again? No way. You're not going to forget that. Because that's your destiny. It's great. It's fantastic. We have a great destiny. Let's stay on course. The times we're in are distracting us from that. 